It, it's, it's like like a child which has a watch and put out every wheel and, and sort it in a box and say, okay, now I know how a clock works. Uh, no, you have destroyed it, but you don't know how, how it works. And perhaps those explanations destroy our, our view that animals are just wonderful. <coughs> I'm Mark Laren Young. Welcome to Scana, a podcast about oceans, ecoethics, and the environment for fans of fact-based reality and reality-based facts. When I was on tour a few years ago with my book, The Killer Whale Who Changed the World, I was invited to the Calgary Writers Festival, WordFest, to talk whales. And I was lucky enough to find myself on a panel with several fantastic writers, including German forester and eco-philosopher Peter Volleben. I was so excited about Peter's book about the amazing secret lives of trees that as we sat backstage waiting for our event, I kept asking question after question about his experiences and his writing. At the time, I was kind of obsessed with this description of fungi, you know, mushrooms, and how they are a plant that shares some of the same characteristics as animals. So when Peter and I were both in Vancouver at the same time, I had to talk to him for Scanna. Thanks to the magic of disappearing hard drives, I feel like we've been promising to share this interview forever. The biggest thing I remember from our conversation was how lovely it was to talk with him. We met at his hotel in downtown Vancouver, and Peter pretty much never stopped smiling. Also, he's really freaking tall. Peter's stories about trees and animals have become a global game changer. We taught plants, fungi, animals, emotions, and so much more. As always, Scan is brought to you by our pod at patreon.com. So if you like what we're up to and want to hear more about oceans, ecoethics, the environment, and of course orcas, if you'd like to suggest future guests, questions we should be asking them, please join our pod and sponsor us at patreon.com. We've got all sorts of perks for members, and even a dollar a month is a huge help as we try to deliver Scana on more platforms than ever. As everyone deals with this strange new reality, you all have just a little more time to listen to podcasts. We've also been working on updating our website at Scana.org. It looks beautiful, and that's where we hide the show notes for every episode. We've got lots of show notes on every episode, including this one. Also, Please subscribe so you don't miss upcoming episodes where we'll be sharing ocean stories about orcas, otters, sea lions, elephant seals, and sharks with guests from around the world. We're also planning to cover a certain election. Scanit is also brought to you by Orca Publishing, the publisher of my three new books about whales for younger readers. Orcas Everywhere, Orcas of the Sailor Sea, and for babies, big whales, small world. You can find out more by all of these books, ebooks, audio versions at orcaseverywhere.com or scanner.org. And they are all available at your local bookstore. And please, please, please support your local bookstores right now. During these crazy times, a lot of them are delivering. And now, Peter Volomit on Plant Rights, Fruit Fly Dreams, and Scientists in Denial. Oh.
great to see you again. Yeah, last time we met at Calgary Writers Fest. Yeah, and I remember you told me that your next book was going to be about the animals on your farm. And I thought, how are you going to turn the animals on your farm into anywhere near as cool a book as you did with trees? And you did it. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, so I'm going to start by asking you a question that I've wondered about all summer. Were you following the story of Tahlequah, the whale that was carrying her daughter for 17 days? No, sorry. <laughs> oh, wow. Uh, I know, I know what you mean. Yes, yes, yes. Uh, I, I read about that. Yeah, yeah. What, That's a very, very sad story. Yeah. What were your thoughts on people were arguing, was the whale grieving? And I'm like, what else would she be doing? Yeah, um, I think um, perhaps first we talk about love um, and uh, that, that many animals are able to love you. Uh, we, we know uh, actually by researching the hormones which drive our emotions. And uh, one, of, one of the hormones is oxytocin, uh, which drives love, mother love, the strongest love of all, uh, which we all have in our veins, also father love, for sure. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, you find that also in, in uh, goats, in horses, and even in goldfish. And uh, uh, if you know that someone can love, uh, you should also grieve, because um, that, that means that you can uh, loosen the, 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 yeah, the, the band that connects you. Because otherwise, for example, when you uh, um, are parents in the wilderness, let's say a deer, and your calf is dead, uh, you wouldn't abandon it. You have, you have, one day you have to go uh, from this place, because otherwise you will be eaten by wolves. When you stay at, at your baby. So uh, if uh, someone loves, he also has to have the ability to grieve. Now you talked about the science of that and, and mirror neurons. Can you explain that, the, the science behind, the, the scientific aspects of love? Yeah, I think that is the scientific aspect. The, the, the problem, uh, perhaps to, to, uh, I don't want to avoid your, the answer to your question, but I think um, but we, we also think we try to find a mechanism behind it because we, and that's a, a way of thinking that is 300 years old that we think uh, we are working like a machine. Today we would say we are working like, like a computer, our brain. And uh, it's like a program computer and the program uh, are our genes. But that isn't the case. The, the case is our brain is not understood so far. For example, when you, when you um, um, uh, compared with the hard disk drive, which, which many people do. They say uh, a brain is like a hard disk drive, like a computer. Uh, then it should be the case that the more you learn, uh, the, uh, the, the, the fuller it gets and one day it's, it's overload and then, then that's it. You can't learn anymore or you have to forget something instead. That's not the case. Uh, the more you, uh, you learn, the, the uh, bigger gets the capacity of your brain. How that works, no one knows. And now we we come to love, which is even more complicated than learning th something. We know that we have hormones which which drive love. We know uh, what what's going on in the neurons with the I don't know the the English words for for this synaptical gap, which it is yeah when it, where it goes from electricity to chemicals and back to electricity. But that means. Uh, that that we would would uh, regard uh, it as a machine and and to understand, but we we, we don't even understand little uh, atoms. 
So uh, and that's the smallest unit, and we we go deeper and deeper and deeper in it, and and we come to come to one point where we say we don't understand it, and why why don't we stay outside and say we we don't understand the whole complexity, but we know that it is there, and love is everywhere. Can you talk about why it is humans want to shy away from giving these attributes to other animals? Because I'm fascinated by anthropomorphism being treated as a sin. And I love how you get into that. Could you talk a bit about that, please? Yeah, uh, that uh, it comes also from this um, uh, look on nature by, by scientists um, which are educated in this sense. For example, when you go more than 300 years back, uh, animals were uh, brought to court and they were judged for uh, having stolen grain, for example. That, that means that they were, tr in this sense, treated like humans. And then uh, 300 years ago, um, in the age of enlightenment, uh, more and more scientists regarded nature as, yeah, as a big machine. And for example, they, they cut dogs, living dogs, and nailed them on planks, cut them open, and the dogs began to scream. And uh, the, the scientists, for example, one of them uh, was Claude Bernard from uh, France, uh, he said, ah, the dog doesn't feel pain. It's, it's just like a machine uh, in, in lack of oil. Uh, it's also screaming and um, we have that uh, nowadays because otherwise you couldn't explain industrial animal keeping. Yeah, you, you say, ah, yeah, if we feed them and they have enough uh, space to, to lay down and uh, it works like this and like that. Uh, because of that thinking, industrial animal keeping is possible. And uh, scientists which, which say uh, that is... Uh, um, yeah, something like unmoral to to and to promorphize. It's, it's like an ugly word. <laughs> you have problems to to pronounce it in English. It's it's, it's not a nice word because it means uh, that is something you shouldn't do. It's something. It's it's like something dirty, and uh, but and that because it means that you explain things emotionally. That's it. It's it's not to anthropomorphize it. It's the problem are the emotions. That are more, and when people feel emotions for animals, for plants, for whatsoever, uh, then they re react in a different way. And uh, the scientists who uh, criticize that, most many of them um, have connections to industry. That's that's the point. It just seems so phenomenally dodgy to me. I read a story about Talakwa. This is the the grieving whale that said the whale appeared to be grieving, and I thought. I have seen people at funerals who appeared to be grieving, and we don't know what's in their hearts. I've seen people at funerals who were very happy the person in the box was dead, but they appeared to be grieving. Uh, I don't think Talakwa was faking her grief. So I, I think it's fascinating that we're prepared to say how another human's feeling, but we're not prepared to go there with an animal. And what are we sp we're supposed to make up a new word to avoid? I don't know. I think, um, uh, yeah, I think, I think again, to, uh, what I try to figure out is why people think um, that animals are worse in things like that. Uh, and, uh, yeah, to say it again, it, it's, it's, it comes from, from our cultural her heritage and science, which isn't good, uh, which means uh, that we bring nature into a ranking. Uh, first are humans, then we have animals, higher animals, lower animals, and then we have plants. And, uh, and this ranking uh, has nothing to do with science. 
because when you're a bio biologist, you can sort uh, animals and plants in categories. You can do that if, if it ever uh, in every case makes sense. That's another question, but you can sort it. But you can sort it on the same level. But when you bring it into a ranking, that that has nothing to do with nature. Because who want to judge which uh, animal is worth more or less than another? We we bring it into a ranking. For example, you won't you won't eat a chimpanzee because it ranks very high. With a pig, okay, most people would eat a pig, but many people won't. And then it comes down, for example, fish. Many people will eat fish, but no pig, because fish is lower. When you, when you look at how fish are captured in net, nets, uh, they, they um, what, what would you say if pigs were captured in nets and uh, drawn into a, um, into a, um, a lake? To, and so that they they uh, starve to and you know, so that they die. How do we say if if they don't get breath? Uh, suffocating. If they suffocating. Uh, yeah. yeah, I think yeah. Yeah, uh, we do that with fish. Uh, bring a net out of the water, and then they can't breathe anymore. And afterwards, we sell them, and people say, "Yeah, oh, that's good, good stuff." Uh, because they, you won't never do that with pigs, but with with fishes, they long low rank lower. And insects rank lower than fish, and plants rank lower than insects. Trees perhaps rank higher than salad, <laughs> yeah, and so on and so on. And that's a ranking, but uh, is it really, really truth? That's an emotional ranking, a cultural ranking. But scientists say that's that's science. Well, part of where I ended up getting really lost when I was working on my book was I assumed there was a scientific reason we were considered a higher being. And I kept asking people, and what I was told was, well, it was brain size, and then it wasn't, because we found out that orcas had bigger brains. And then it was uh, stratification, it was the, uh, the complexity of the brain. Well, no, or orcas and dolphins have us beat for complex brains. And every time, you know, it was tool use, but no, it better not be tool use, because crows can use tools. And the, the goalposts kept moving. So what is the goalpost or is there one? Yeah, I think it's um, uh, the, the, the biggest problem is when animals come too close to us, to us uh, that, that causes fear. Because then you have to think about what you're doing to nature. And when, when you keep them in distance, then you can use them as, as raw material. And uh, when they when they come close to us, yeah, we have we have we have brothers sisters in nature, and for for many people that's a problem because it, it disturbs business, and it, is, it disturbs daily life because you have to to look what what you have on on your plate, uh, you have to look what what you buy, and so on and so on, and everyone knows, yeah, that's true, but uh, if scientists w would agree, uh, then the whole building would would. Uh, uh, go down and um, yeah, I think uh, the the main problem is is really uh, to keep the whole animal and plant kingdom in distance, and that has nothing nothing to do with with science. The 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 best example is the Neanderthal man. Uh, it was considered to be an ape, and or a different species. Nowadays we know perhaps it, it isn't the uh, Neanderthal man uh, isn't a different species. Perhaps it's Homo sapiens. With just a, perhaps a little different eye color, for example, um, what we nowadays know, which scientists long denied, that we mixed with Neanderthal man, and perhaps it isn't even extinct. 
because it just mixed up in, in, uh, in the modern uh, Homo sapiens and, it, and uh, the Neanderthal man is still there. For example, when you have um, um, white skin color, blue eyes, that's Neanderthal man. So, uh, but what, which scientists uh, long denied. They denied that Neanderthal man could speak, could uh, um, had, a, had a culture. I think it was uh, five months, months ago, they discovered wonderful um, cave paintings in Spain, uh, which were considered to be from uh, modern mankind. Uh, and uh, they proved the, the age of the pigments. They found out they were around about 66,000 years old, and at that time they were uh, just Neanderthal men in this region. And before that, the Neanderthal men were considered to make as maximum as a hashtag sign. So, <laughs> okay, uh, Neanderthal men and Homo sapiens, perhaps it's the same, we don't know. But it's a good example to see, as, I don't know why, perhaps it's a religious thing to say Homo sapiens, it's the crown of evolution, and all other creatures are servants. When you talked about uh, animals having criminal charges, I find it fascinating trying to figure out why we have rights and no animals do. And I'm getting, again, I keep looking for a legal explanation. And all I'm really getting is it would be very inconvenient. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. That's exactly that. And uh, look, for example, in the Swiss constitution, and the Swiss people are regarded to be very conservative, not, not, not very flexible. <laughs> Sorry for the Swiss nation. It's a wonderful country. And they have in, the, in their constitution plant rights, rights for plants in the, in the constitution. Uh, you, you, you would never think that, that a country like this uh, regard plants as uh, worth to mention in the constitution. So um, uh, there are people thinking about that, but uh, I think that's a process which is 20 years behind the um, discussion on animal rights, and we don't have real animal rights so far. When you look at the industrial animal keeping, when you look how clever uh, pigs are, for example, uh, or, or hens, uh, I describe it in the book that, that our rooster uh, lies, not too often, but he is able to lie and he is able to, to think what, what, what he is doing just to get sex, <laughs> what, what it's all about, obviously. <laughs> my, my best example is uh, how, it, how it works on emotion, uh, and how, how emotions are more important than our mind. And the best example, therefore, is Bill Clinton with <laughs> Nikola Lewinsky. I think that wasn't all the clever, too. But that's another, another story to tell. Uh, I don't want to, to compare Clinton with a rooster. But, uh, <laughs> <laughs> but uh, uh, I think I, I, a rooster I, will be a very interesting <laughs> president. <laughs> no, but. Uh, yeah, I think that's 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 what it's what it's about. It's interesting to me that all of the fights for personhood for apes or or or, or cetaceans all seem to focus on captivity. I'm going, why aren't we fighting for rights on different levels? Why not? You yeah. know. Yeah, right. It's it's uh, what we discuss is uh, in the moment is uh, the conditions under where we we keep animals, but uh, we don't talk about general rights. And if we talk about rights on animals. Which animals? Orcas? Okay, they, we know now, thanks to your work, that uh, orcas are very close to us. They are different. Sometimes types uh, of, of behavior, they are better, and perhaps in some they are worse, I don't know. 
And, and, and beside that, that doesn't mean that we don't have that that we have to give up our rights. We have just have to respect other rights. That's that's I, that should be possible. But the question is, when we have rights for orcas and chimpanzees and perhaps pigs, what about flies? We know that, for example, that fruit flies are able to dream. To dream with 200,000 uh, neurons, and we have, I don't know, 10 billions or whatsoever. Uh, a dream in, in this, this very little brain. <laughs> we don't know what's going on there. We, we just see that they're moving their, their legs. But uh, what about uh, rights for fruit, fruit flies? And when we uh, respect fruit flies, what about fungi? Because fungi are in between animals and plants, closer to animals. When they are closer to animals, and we know that that there the, the, the is uh, fungi with a with a, um, a geographic mind. They know uh, with there are fungi which are able to to move slime molds, for example. Uh, uh, what about them? And when you have rights for them, what about trees? And finally, what about salad? And that's, I think, that's the fear behind when we give all those creatures rights. Then we have starved to death. And then you just can say, no, that's not what it is about. It's, it's about to be more respectful. And that's it. It's funny. That I think my favorite line in your first book, or, or sorry, I know not your first book, but in your book about Hidden Life of Trees was, fungi are amazing. And following that story, and I thought of my friends, the Arrogant Worms, and their song, Carrot Juice is Murder. I'm like, I'm not sure that's... <laughs> I thought, maybe it is. This is very confusing. How do you decide what to eat? How do you juggle that as the person who's basically said, yeah, you know what? Carrots may have feelings. Fungi have feelings. Fungi, fungi yeah. have intelligence. Yeah. Yeah. How do you decide what you're going to put on your plate? Um, I decided more um, 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 uh, according to the way how the, the, the food is produced. Um, that means uh, that it's um, on one hand environmentally friendly and on the other hand uh, if I really need that. And, uh, and I say, for example, I, I still eat meat just a, few, uh, just a little from organic uh, animal keeping. But perhaps, I don't think it lasts very long, perhaps I'm going to be completely vegetarian, but that, that doesn't release me in this sense, because when we talk about uh, plant feelings, and there is plant feelings, there's communication. For example, when, when you plant salad, there's communication between the salad, and when you kill one, I don't know what the others are telling each other about that, but I'm hungry, and I'm, I'm a living being, and I have also rights. That's exactly uh, what it is about. Uh, uh, I can also regard my rights, I can enjoy life, but uh, in every case where it is possible, I take care about other creatures. And you talked about the dolphin in Ireland. Yeah. Can you talk about that a little bit? This dolphin in Ireland, yeah, it's, it's a tourist attraction and um, uh, it, it comes to tourists, it's a lonely dolphin and uh, perhaps it, it's, it just like to be amongst humans. And, uh, what's, and, and it's for decades, it's, it's a very old dolphin and I hope it still, it still lives so far, I think, I think so. And uh, what, what uh, some scientists say, because this is a really heartwarming story, because this is really a very gentle dolphin and he likes it uh, to be amongst uh, the boats or swimming people and so on. And uh, without being, being feed, that, that would be another story. Uh, that, uh, no, it, he really loves it. 
And what scientists say, perhaps this dolphin has a gene defect. I say, okay, love is a gene defect. Hmm, that's a, that's a, a strange uh, explanation for that. That's all uh, scientists uh, are, are talking about this case. Where say, uh, when, you, when you look at nature just in this way, you don't discover anything. Yeah, there's a, a lovely term that Franz Duval came up with, anthropodenial. <laughs> and I'm quite fascinated by the, this, the idea that scientists go out of their way to deny yeah. that animals have emotions, feelings, intelligence, and try to reduce them to biological machines. And I just don't get it. Yeah, uh, that's, that's very good because um, this is exactly what many, not all, they're very good scientists because otherwise we wouldn't know those wonderful things um, you and I write about. But um, uh, in most cases, scientists say we haven't discovered that, we haven't proved that, so it doesn't exist. And that's, uh, that's near to being mad because things you don't see, you can't see it doesn't exist. It's, it's like a little child which puts his uh, hands over the eyes and see and says, I can't be seen because I don't see anything. Well, I mean, I like the fact that you got into anecdotal evidence, which scientists yeah. don't seem to be fond of. And I'm going, but how many anecdotes adds up to fact? I mean, then almost every single person I've ever spoken to about orcas has a story about something fictionally implausible that these orcas have done with them. How many of those do you need to hear before you start going, uh, maybe there's a pattern. Maybe this pattern means something, like what you're talking about with crows. Yeah, but I think uh, you can see uh, everything from two sides. And if you're a negative uh, person, uh, for example, if you're, uh, it's, it's, today it's, yeah, it, perhaps you can, can compare it with a, with a bubble, uh, internet bubble, Facebook bubble, whatsoever. Uh, and when you're interested in negative thing, things, you just hear negative things. And, uh, and, you, and you think the world is negative. And when you're a scientist and you're thinking uh, animals are working uh, like a machine, then you just see a machine. And when you, as a friendly guy, orca-friendly guy, say, no, just a moment, then you say, look at this guy wearing long hair. I don't know if you, if you know how, how things start um, that, that other opinions are suppressed. And they start by, uh, start by how people are looking, how they are living, uh, how they are researching, and so on. And, and when you're living in your bubble and you want to defend your bubble, you found, find uh, 1,000 reasons why it is true. And the problem is that I would estimate that 70% of, of the science community is in this bubble. I don't understand why. Coming at this not being a scientist, I actually assume scientists will be much more open-minded about things like this. Yeah. So that's been a really startling discovery to go, no, that, that's just an anecdote, and that's just an anecdote. And the other 40 anecdotes you've got, those don't add up to anything either. It's, it's fascinating. Yeah, but look at people like, uh, like Jane Goodall, for example. I think she had, she had a, a hard life and, and was also attacked by, by uh, scientists. Uh, so. Uh, I think the, the, the best scientists which we know nowadays from former times uh, were lone wolves at their time uh, because they did discoveries where, which the science community wouldn't regard as to be true. 
And uh, but nowadays we know ah that that are wonderful persons. For example, uh, Conrad Lorenz. I don't know if you know this. He made experiments with goose and goose emotions. And uh, now nowadays we know it. Yeah, he did really wonderful research or Jane Goodall or whomsoever. And uh, yeah, it's it's a it's a strong defending community. And nowadays we have another problem. For example, I have uh, I'm I'm under attack from some forest scientists in Germany. Uh, but they are related to the forest industry. And the problem is, uh, although there are professors at university, uh, the, the forest business in Germany is run by uh, state authorities. They are the biggest timber sellers and they should be the control inst instance. So there's a connection between science and timber business. And then you can imagine why, for example, why they say oh, it's crazy that when you, when you talk about that trees can feel pain. Otherwise, you couldn't fell them. That's the problem. <laughs> well, one thing that I, I find that we do to distance, and I've gotten into this a fair bit lately, I'm finding myself pulling further and further away from using the numbers for whales and using the names for whales. And I look at the first thing Jane Goodall did was she named David Greybeard. Yeah, and, and can not you talk, 5A or whatsoever. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Can you talk about names versus numbers and, and the way they're used in yeah. terms of distancing? Yeah, exactly. That's exactly what it is, uh, and that's exactly why why uh, to, to follow your path, uh, you you change when you change numbers versus names. You change um, you change um, yeah. What what I don't know what what I should say for for numbers. Uh, you change perhaps a, a, a machine to uh, for emotions, and that's that's exactly the point uh, I discussed also with uh, David Suzuki today. Uh, that we should have to bring more emotions in the, in the process and the discussions about in, environmental th uh, things uh, and, and things of climate change. Because when we just discuss the, the numbers or, or the process or whatsoever, so it's, it's emotionally seen so far away, it doesn't touch your heart, just your mind. And, and the mind is not the most important thing. That's uh, also the topic of the book. Uh, to, to have a happy life, you don't have to have a, a big brain. <laughs> you don't have to be intelligent to have a, a fulfilled life, to be happy. When you, when you think about what is most important in your life, most important in just, just a few words or even just one. Well, that's one of the things I loved about you getting in, that you got into in your book, which was love, altruism, empathy. Yeah, that says oh, nothing to do with intelligence. Therefore, for love, you don't need to have a big brain. Love, if, if it is true, uh, even fish can feel love. They don't have a big brain. Uh, but in our ranking, we are going down from the top brain size to lower brain size. Therefore, we have problems with orcas. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, that's it. And uh, yeah, but that's in, in the ranking because we think the world is working on minds. No, the world is working on love. And that's the difference. And uh, therefore, it doesn't matter, even in, in, in human populations, it's a ranking. It's a, the, the intelligence index, which is so important. And if you're not more than 1.3, oh, then you're, you're, then you're a sad guy. Uh, no, that, that, that's not important. And that's, for example, why we have problems uh, still nowadays with uh, disabled persons, disabled by mind, because, yeah, think of the ranking. But they can feel love. <laughs> like you and me, and that's important. And 
uh, I think that's if you can change this. And I think perhaps I can give a little brick to that new house. You too, you can too give two bricks with your wonderful Orca book. And uh, yeah, perhaps it takes one or two decades and we have a new house of science. And um, I think it's worth it. Can you say just a bit about animals as oracles? Because I love that chapter. Pardon? Animal oracles. When he oracles. What is or uh, oracle? Oh, this is the English translation of your book. Yeah, yeah. I'm not good in English. <laughs> <laughs> uh, this is about animals knowing things that we don't. The them anticipating volcanoes, them anticipating ah, okay. forest fires. Yeah. Uh, orcas and dolphins constantly seem to know things that they yeah. shouldn't, and we yeah. don't understand how they know them. Um, yeah, animals are some animals because we are also just one animal species, and when we we can't put all animals together in one pot because uh, they they differ as much as we and orcas, for example. But there are some animals which have uh, different abilities. They have a sense for yeah, a volcano outbreak or other things, uh, or a tsunami. And uh, science is always trying to explain it by waves, gravitated waves, or uh, the little vibrations that we can't, can't feel, but they can feel. But uh, there are more senses. There are more senses uh, when you go down to... Um, uh, the the um, atomic things like quarks and neutrinos and, and things and in this level we know that there are uh, things happen which which we uh, wouldn't have imagined uh, imagined ten years ago we would say that's esoteric and now we know ah that's science and in this sense I think animals have um, possibilities that we don't have and which can't be explained in in easy uh, technical terms. And uh, there are wonderful things that like like the goats, which are able to predict uh, um, uh, forecast a, a volcano outbreak, and they leave the volcano uh, hours before it breaks out, or the, the tsunami thing. I don't know what waves should go through the air in front of a tsunami. I don't think that, that there are some. Uh, there, it's a certain sense, and we don't. I think we don't need to explain everything. It, it's it's like like a child which has a watch and put out every wheel and, and sort it in a box and say, okay, now I know how a clock works. Uh, no, you have destroyed it, but you don't know how, how it works. And perhaps those explanations destroy our, our view that animals are just wonderful. When you, when you see it, it's, it's a machine, for example, an orca. When you, when you uh, look at the brain and you say, okay, orca can sleep by by just one, one brain half and the other one is, is still awake or things like that. And you go deeper and deeper and say, ah, that's how its ears are, are working and the stomach and whatsoever. And then you have a explained a machine because you have a part, uh, the, the, um, cut it into, uh, into little parts and the parts themselves, they are not wonderful. And that's, I, I don't like explanation, uh, nature explanation by, done by this. It's like uh, having a butcher which, which, butcher which uh, uh, cuts a, a, a pig into parts and, and sell it in front of its desk. And now when, when you see the meat, you say, ah, I know how a pig works. No, <laughs> you have meat, but not a pig. And have you ever seen a whale? Yeah, yesterday. <laughs> Wow, can you tell us about that? Yeah, I've, I've uh, made also in, in, in Norway several times whale watching. Yesterday on, on our way, way back from the Quaker Nation, um, in Philip's arms we saw humpback whales. Uh, 
And uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's really, really wonderful to hear them breathe. I love that, that sound. It, it just, they just don't have to have anything other. I don't have to come very close to them. I just, when, when I hear, hear them breathe, I think it's, it's wonderful to see it. And then, then, then uh, everything feels calm, feels peaceful. It's a wonderful feeling. That seems like a perfect place to end this. Thank you so much for your yeah. time. Thanks for doing this. <laughs> Thank you, Mark. Thanks again for checking out Scana during these surreal times. Scana is produced in Saanich, BC, traditional territories of the Wasanich, Songhees, and Esquimalt peoples. If you like what we're doing and want to help us share more stories about oceans, ethics, and the environment more often, please join Scana's pod at patreon.com. Even a dollar a month helps make this podcast possible. Sponsors for this episode include Joan Watterson, Solomon Siegel, Simon McNair, Darren Laren Young, Robert Anderson, Nancy Campbell, and Yosef Wask. Please subscribe to the podcast and our newsletter and check out our show notes at scanna.org. Follow us on social media, share the show with your friends, share it with strangers. Everyone has lots more time to listen these days. If the show doesn't work for you, I'm Rachel Maddow. Rachel Maddow has a podcast? Cool. Scan is produced by the always awesome Rain Benu, associate producer and audio engineer Isabella Hamashi, audio engineer, social media, and so much more Asia Radigan. Our web wizard is Katie Brown. We've also had all sorts of help over the last few months from Maeve Milligan, Cole Flickbellis, Joanne Juan, and Brian Murphy. Scanna's theme, Scanna, is by Leah Abramson. Since Peter and I talked about this song in the episode, what else could we possibly end off this episode with but a song by our friends The Arrogant Worms, a band we support on Patreon.com? This is their classic, Carrot Juice is Murder. Listen up, brothers and sisters, come hear my desperate tale. I speak of our friends of nature, trapped in the dirt like a jail. Vegetables live in oppression, served on our tables each night. This killing of veggies is madness, I say we take up the fight. Salads are only for murderers, coleslaw's a fascist regime. Don't think that they don't have feelings, just cause a radish can't scream. I've heard the screams of the vegetables, watching their skins being their insides revealed and steam with no mercy how do you think that feels that it hurts really bad juice constitutes murder and that's a real greenhouses prisons for slaves and my vegetables to stop all this gardening it's dirty as let's call the spanky the spade is a spade is a spade is a spade I saw man eating celery, so I beat him black and blue. If he ever touches a sprout again, I'll bite him clean in two. I'm a political prisoner, trapped in a windowless cage. Cause I stopped the slaughter of turnips by killing five men in a rage. I told the judge when he sentenced me, this is my finest hour. I'd kill those farmers again just to save one more cauliflower. I've heard the screams 
of the vegetables, watching their skins being peeled, their insides revealed, and steam with no mercy. How do you think that feels? It hurts really bad. Constitutes murder, and that's a real crime. Houses, prisons for slaves. Let my vegetables go. Time to stop all this gardening. It's dirty as hell. Let's call a spade a spade. Yes, a spade is a. How low as people do we dare to stoop? Making young broccolis bleed in the soup. Untie your beans, uncage your tomatoes, let potted plants free. No mercy, you fat gourmets. How do you think that feels? Leave them out in the Coward Jews constitutes murder. Greenhouses, prisons for slaves. Yes, your compost. It's time to stop all this gardening. Take up macrame. Let's call a spade a spade. Is a spade is a spade is a spade is a spade is a 